Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, she's the president of the International Pain Foundation, entrepreneur, TV personality, and best-selling author. It's Barbie Engel. How are you doing today, Barbie? Hey, Alex. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Oh my goodness. Well, I was born where I'm from from is Bangkok, Thailand. Oh, (laughs) surprisingly, Um, people don't look at me and think that, but I was born in a Bangkok hospital and um, moved to the United States at about four years old. So um, quite an interesting start. And um, growing up, I grew up doing all kinds of activities from cheerleading, dance, gymnastics, track, soccer, Girl Scouts, church choir, um, anything, anything that I really wanted to do or try, I had the opportunity to do so. And part of that was because I have a learning disability. And part of that is that my mom was very good at multitasking. And she made sure that we all learned how to multitask. So we were constantly going from activity to activity. When you tell people that you're from Thailand, do people think like, no, are you lying to me? Or does that make something unique about yourself and something that you take very much pride in? I take pride in it. I think it is unique, but I also get the people who either don't believe me or think I'm trying to have diversity in my life just to make it fit or something like that. Um, But I take deep pride in it. My sister was adopted. My mom had my older brother and she was told she couldn't have any more kids. And he really wanted a sibling, a sister in particular. So um, they let him go to the orphanage and pick a sister. And, um, And then all of a sudden, oops, she was able to get pregnant. Oops, she carried me actually 10 months instead of nine. And, um, in the Thai hospitals, they don't induce labor, but my sister and I were raised as twins because we're really close in age. And, and even though we look nothing alike, um, it's, she was chosen and I was an accident and we actually were raised as twins. We have our own twin language, even to the point now, my husband will be like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And we think we're just talking normal, but people don't understand what we're saying. So it's kind of interesting, but, um, the fact that we were racist twins, even though we look nothing alike, was really fun and interesting and a conversation starter for sure. Growing up, did you and your siblings always have a close bond or was there times where it was kind of like usual siblings go through? We have always been very, very close. My mom had some psychological challenges that she had to get work through. Um, she was an abused child and she developed multiple personality disorder. And, um, when I was seven, my parents divorced because my dad thought he could help us better outside the home than trying to deal with, with her challenges plus raise us. So, um, so the four of us, cause I actually ended up having a little brother, um, <laughs> the four of us ended up being super close. Even to this day, I'm so lucky. So many of my friends do not have the relationship with their siblings that I have uh, with with mine. And I'm blessed in that us four kids stuck together, remained very tight and close-knit. Because usually there's like one person in every family that is the outcast or isn't liked as much, or they are the black sheep where they, they don't do what the rest of the family does. 
And for us, all four of us kids are different and we have different interests and things that we do, but we all stayed close and remained close. And that's very unusual. You mentioned earlier that you, your mom wanted to get you guys to multitask. When you were doing all those activities, did you ever feel like, oh, this is a lot on my plate? Or were you just enjoying it as a kid and being able to do all these different activities? I enjoyed it. And um, some of my siblings didn't. <laughs> but I personally enjoyed it. But I love to perform and show my talents. And I would sing and dance and model and do pageants and and do all these different things. And also just personality wise, if I start something, I want to finish it. So Mm -hmm. I would just be like, this is a project and I'm going to conquer this challenge. Nothing was ever an issue. It was always a challenge. Can I accomplish this? I didn't have to be in first place. I just had to complete it and do the, do my best. My dad would constantly say, all I ask is you try your best. And that was always enough. So whether I got first place or last place, that didn't matter as long as I gave it my all and, and completed it. So for me, it was the fun of completing it and, and having something to celebrate. But I also enjoyed the process of having all these different activities. And really, one would lead into the next. Um, so it really did help me spend my childhood in a positive, productive way. Did doing those certain activities help you with other activities. So like you mentioned, like modeling pageant, singing, dancing, some of those all use similar skill sets. Do you think that was an advantage for you when you were able to do all of those activities? Absolutely. This, like the skills that I learned from going to modeling classes, I used in pageants to often win the pageants or place in the top, you know, one to three spots. So it definitely helped to use the skills that I was learning And I even, the skills that I learned through cheerleading, I think are the most valuable being, you know, a cute face for something doesn't necessarily matter as much when you're, when you get older, but uh, time management and responsibility and being part of a team and being a team player that definitely translates into adulthood and being more productive as an adult. So definitely uh, some skills translate better to adulthood than others, but um, all of them were life lessons. Were there any activity that you thought, okay, I want to do this long-term, maybe as a career path, or did you kind of have other <laughs> ideas of what you wanted to do growing up? When I was four years old, we had just gone to America and I told my father, I will be a cheerleader the rest of my life. It was the first time I ever saw a cheerleader. He took me to a soccer game. It was the, the U.S. Diplomats soccer game. And they had cheerleaders like all around the, the outside of the field doing these cheers in unison. And I was like, what is that? That's what I, <laughs> that is exactly what I want to do. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, no. And then I was about 12 years old and I repeated my dream. My whole life is going to be cheerleading. That's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And he's like, nope, you have to do something else besides cheerleading. It's like, but it's my purpose in life. What are you talking about? And then I graduated high school. I'm moving on to college and, and you can't, you can't major in cheerleading, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So I was, my next best thing was I'm going to major in dance. And he was like, no, you're not going to major in dance. You're going to pick something that you can actually get a career in. And so uh, I went back through the list and I chose social psychology 
and um, not realizing the connection between dance and cheerleading, performing and social psychology. Um, I just thought this would be easy to pass. So let me go do this. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, all right, this is something you can get, make a career on thinking I was going to go into counseling or something like that. Um, and the week after graduating college, I, um, moved away to go get married and start my life and had no idea what job I was going to do. And I saw the local cheerleaders in this new place I moved to and they sucked really bad. And I said, they need help. And, and I went down and got a business license and went back to the coach and said, Hey coach, I would like to train your cheerleaders. And that was the start of my own cheer and dance training business. And she took me up on the offer and um, that was my first client. And then it just grew from there. And I was teaching all throughout the Western United States and Canada. So um, all from just seeing cheerleaders that needed help. So once again, my dad's like, you're never going to do this for the rest of your life. You have to have something else to fall back on. And then first opportunity, I created a, an opportunity to have this business and, and do cheerleading once again. So, and then that next year I was hired by Washington State University to be their head cheer and dance coach. So it, and so I had my business and we hosted summer camps. And then during the school year, I judged competitions and hosted them and coached at Washington State. When you were doing cheerleading in college, yeah, were you more liking the competitive competitions that they offered or doing during the games? Because I know some people experience where I'm not (laughs) a cheerleader, but I've seen them at the games. And then I see my college going through the competitive side and it's completely two different like kind of performances in a way, but it's still the same amount of skills that you need. Yeah. And I love both. I love sideline cheerleading, you know, cheering at the games and I love the, the competition only probably because we won most of, all, of the ones <laughs> that I was in. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I like that, but um, I like winning when I can, but, um, <laughs> but I really liked the sideline cheerleading as well. And um, I competed or I cheered it at um, first at Richard Bland junior college and then at George Mason. And we didn't neither had football as a sport. And when I began coaching Washington State University, we had football and I got thrown in really fast. Like I cheered for football in high school and you had kind of had to know the game, but I wasn't cheer captain in high school. So I just relied on the captain to like pay attention to the game and I just (laughs) performed. Um, (laughs) But when I got thrown in at the college division 1A level at a Pac-10, now it's Pac-12 school, it definitely was like, whoa, what is this? It like took everything I knew to a whole new level on the sideline cheerleading part. And then I introduced competitive cheerleading to Washington State and uh, built the team up from, I was the first coach they ever hired. And so they had cheerleading teams and dance teams, but they never had a coach. So I was the first one that, that Washington State ever hired and built the program up. And now they still are competing today as well as doing the sideline activities. Wow. And you're yeah. it's so right that like mixing two different performances, the game and the cheerleading, you kind of have to know each other. Like the football <laughs> players may not 
understand why you're doing that, but they know that what you guys are doing is getting the crowd and crowd engagement. But then yes. when you guys are performing that you have to watch the game. So you're not cheering at the wrong time or yes, something that's exactly. complete. Like you're not cheering for offense when your team's when on, defense. on defense. And that's, I love basketball because it's like back and forth. So yeah. quick and you have to, you, you, well, one, you're up close and I love that energy. But two, you have to pay attention and know, like, as soon as you lose the ball, you you stop cheering for a basket. And you start cheering for defense. Like, it it just happens. And and in football, you like le- legit, you can't even see over the football team that you're cheering next to. You have to look up at the at the screen and see what's happening, or stand up on some kind of platform and be like, oh no no, we're on defense now. Oh yeah, first down, let's go. And then have a game plan. Like every first down. These are the things that we might do. Every third down, we have to have the, the most noise in the stadium when we're on defense that we can. On offense, yep. shut up. Like, don't move. <laughs> don't talk. Don't lead the crowd. Like, lead the crowd in being who could be the quietest. So, so it definitely just stepped the whole process up a, a whole nother level when I started coaching football or cheerleading at a football game. That was just nuts. But um, it, it went okay. <laughs> I did probably make a few mistakes the first couple of games, <laughs> <laughs> honestly. But um, but definitely learned pretty quick. And they put a headset on me. And so the people up in the – I could hear what was going on up in the booth as they're making calls on what was happening on the field. So I could understand that football language and then created hand signals to as to which dance – we had 17 dances, so I had like 17 hand signals that I'm like doing <laughs> kind of our own sign language with, with the team um, as to what song's coming up next, what to perform, where to go on the field. All of that was all hand signals. So, yeah. When you started your business, did you wish you took business class to help yes. you prepare yourself? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And um, over the years, I, I, especially in the very beginning, like I would make a mistake on like a tax form or something, but luckily our IRS is very good at saying, Hey, you messed up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Fix this, (laughs) pay this extra, whatever it is. So, uh, so I did have to learn all of that. Um, I am lucky. My sister, like I said, we all have something different, a different talent and uh, her talent is um, human resources and business administration. So I can rely on her on some of the questions um, for the businesses that I, that I've been a part of, but I did definitely, especially like in hiring people and how to pay them and, and all the tax forms and everything. I did have to learn a lot with that. What was the biggest challenge you faced with that first job you had? Oh goodness. Well, starting my own company or. Well, you talked about, you worked Washington with that. State. Uh, yeah. the one that you talked about, you, they needed the help and that you were offering to coach them. Yes. That one. Yeah. So, well, that the hardest thing was just getting past their co- like teaching their coach why they needed help without being offensive <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and saying like, look, you guys could be amazing, but you're like 20 years behind the rest of the country. It's what it felt like. And, and so I really can help you and, and teach you some basic techniques that you should have learned at summer camp. But I learned at that point that they did not have competitive cheer in the state. 
So the whole state of Washington was behind the times. It wasn't just that one team, which mm-hmm. was great for business. But um, I remember sitting in a meeting with the WIAA, which they basically run athletics for the state, for all the high schools and junior highs. And they said, we are not a competitive state and we never will be. And I was like, well, you don't have to be, but but my company's going to host the cheer competition. So if teams show up, um, it will be okay. And, And some teams thought it was illegal to compete. And, and wow. these types of things. So they weren't progressing because they didn't have a need to learn new skills or get new material choreography or, or improve their skills. So it was like the same old, same old, and almost like cheers from the 70s, 60s, and 70s, and moves from the 60s and 70s. They weren't up with the 90s, you know? So it, it literally was teaching them that it's okay to compete. It's okay to do different choreography. Every school in the state doesn't have to be doing the exact same thing. And um, so that kind of was the challenge was, was teaching the coach that, hey, you need these, these skills for your athletes, but also going with the WIA and saying, look, I know you don't want competition, but we're still going to do it. In the first year, we only had four teams out of the whole state compete. And, you know, that to me, that was a success because at least there was the first competition ever in the state and I was part of it. So that was a success, but it grew and grew and grew to a multi-day event with, you know, hundreds of teams and all different age divisions. We had cheer and dance divisions, and it really grew into a huge event. And and we had cheerleaders coming from other states to come and compete. So it went from being a state competition to the um, Northwest to the Western United States. We had teams coming down from Canada. So, um, and now... After, after I got sick, because I went through a whole health challenge or challenges, um, and I couldn't coach anymore, and I lost my business and, and things. But after I left, the state actually started hosting its own championships each year when they had literally said there will never be a cheer championship in our state. And wow. now they host it every year. So pretty cool that I was the one that was like, well, you don't have to, but I'm going to. <laughs> it's kind of like you make you you had a mission that you wanted to accomplish it yes. may have been the co- competitive the ter- the championships or the competition but you knew that you wanted to make a difference in the world of cheerleading for the state of Washington and you were going to do anything you could e- even if it didn't take a short amount of time the long road was all worth it at the end would you say absolutely Absolutely. And, and I know I'm part of the legacy in that state forever. They, nobody can take it away. And same thing with coaching at Washington state. I was the first coach they ever hired. I got my teams into the top five in the country rankings and no one can ever take those accomplishments away from me or any of the student athletes that were there along with me growing this and making it is what it is, you know, for what it is today. Nobody can take that away from us. Those are huge accomplishments. For someone that might be listening that is in the cheerleading world or a coach, what would you tell them to get them motivated to motivate their students to be the best cheerleader that they can be and get them at the competitive level that you think that they should be at? 
Absolutely. I would say something my cheerleading, one of my cheerleading coaches taught me, which was no deposit, no return. She'd say life is like a bank, no deposit, no return. If you don't put into it, if you don't put anything in, you're going to get nothing back. So the more you put in, the more you understand the values and the lessons that come from being a student athlete, from competing, from being the best you can be, you're not going to get those life skills out of it. I, like I said, I learned time management and responsibility and, and working with other people and being on time and, you know, what gets a crowd motivated, what motivates other people so that we can, the, when one person's trying to do something, they can get that thing done. But if you get a team to work on the same project, it's called synergy. You mm-hmm. can, one person can't lift 500 pounds, but a team can. It's, it's the same thing when it comes to putting your time and effort into developing your talents. You have these skills, but it still takes additional effort, time, and energy to get that to turn into something that can carry you through the rest of your life. And I use those exact skills from cheerleading when I got sick to change my focus instead of being a physical cheerleader to become a mental cheerleader. We need to have people, humans, that are able to transition no matter what challenge is facing them. And in cheerleading, that is exactly what you learn. And especially for the competitive cheerleaders, if your music stops, how do you keep going? If your team is losing 50 to zero, how do you keep smiling and performing on the sideline and having hope until the end of the game? Because when, it, when you become an adult and life is the game and your goal is to make it as far as you can with as many winning moments as you can, that is the purpose of the living life. That is the thing that you need to do and accomplish. And you can use all of those skills and talents that you've made into habits because you've done them so often and become better and better at them when you need that transition, because one in three people live with a chronic disease. So it's definitely something you're going to need, either whether you're you're the caregiver or the patient, you're going to need these skills. And definitely making that transition was a lot easier for me because I had those skills. Talk about the health challenges that you faced and what has it taught you about yourself and how you are able to adapt and still be able to do things that you enjoy? I've had multiple health challenges and it started with endometriosis and I went through treatments and medications and surgery and I finally felt like, whoa, I conquered the world. And in that process, the only time I really had to take off is when I had a hysterectomy and I literally, I couldn't do stairs or anything for about a month. So that was really the only time I took off, but I made it through that and I felt like I accomplished something. And then a few years later, I was in a minor car accident and got what they told me was whiplash. They said, you'll be better in three or four days and days turned into weeks, years, you know, it, it snowballed. And here I am today. I actually, that car accident actually triggered a rare autoimmune disease that attacks my neurological system. Really, it attacks every system of my body. But the worst part is the neurological system. And I went from being on top of the world, living out my dreams that I worked hard for to accomplish to having nothing. I lost my marriage of 10 years, my job, my company, my ability to drive. I didn't know where I was going to live. Um, I went from top of the world to food stamps and literally had to rebuild my entire life 
on top of that, it took, because it was a rare disease, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, RSD, it, doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong or didn't have the expertise to figure out what was wrong. So it took three years and 43 provider, medical providers before I got a proper diagnosis. And in that three years, I was doing some of the things that I shouldn't be doing with medications and surgical procedures. And I was overtreated, undertreated, and mistreated to the point of making it worse and, and being in the wheelchair and then and or bed bound for that entire time. And even once I got my diagnosis, it was still another four years until I got a, a treatment that worked for me. So it definitely was a journey and a challenge. And um, in that first three years, I had to learn patience. And I also had to learn a whole new vocabulary with the medical system and talking to medical providers. I would go in crying and just saying, fix me, help me, I'm in pain. And through that, I wasn't getting the help I needed once I started using adjectives, which that 43rd provider helped teach me, um, like burning fire pain would have been a really important one to talk about earlier uh, in the process. Um, once I started using adjectives to describe what I was going through and learn how to use the one to 10 pain scale and that type of thing, I was not able to set the expectations. And that is something that's very important. If you're a new patient, finding out everything you can about your condition and then setting the expectations with your family and friends and the people around you so that they can help you so that you don't struggle or lose everything so hard and fast like I did. Um, I think that would made a, a big difference, but we're not taught in society how to have those conversations and, and what our responsibilities and roles are in the health system. You know, you think, oh, I'm sick, I'm injured, I'm hurt, whatever it is, you go to the doctor or the emergency room and they make you better. But that's when you have a rare disease, that's not the way our system is designed. So you have to become a, a studied person that is able to manage and navigate the health system. Otherwise, you're just going to hit landmines left and right and not get the care that you need in a timely manner. You talked about like having people understand what you're going through, through your condition, family, friends. I have a condition with type one diabetes and the way I explain it makes sense to me. But when I'm explaining it to like my friends and family, they have no idea what I'm going through. But then I tell them in different ways with like the adjectives and they're like, oh, now I understand. It's a little bit better. It's kind of like we use terms like for your condition and my condition that Makes sense to other people that have that condition, right. but the public, the regular public just doesn't understand. And I think educating so that we all know and can help, I think that's how things can get better and we can be there to support each other even more. Absolutely. It, and it comes down to no matter what disease you have, like, what are you doing in your life? What's your lifestyle? What's your environment? What's your support system? So many things activities in life revolve around our health that when you're healthy, you don't even realize it. If I went back and coached today, I would be a different coach. I coached how my coaches coached me. Mm -hmm. And when cheerleaders were injured, I would be like, get back out there. We need you. Instead of giving them the time and, and space and energy to heal whatever was wrong and then come back, I would, I would pressure them as I was pressured to hurry up and, and get through whatever it was, suck it up, tape, tape your ankle, get a cortisone shot, 
not even thinking of what that could be doing to their body. And some of, some of the, the student athletes I coach that I'm still in touch with do have some chronic issues from injuries and things that they sustained. And, um, you know, I, I definitely would do it different, but I wish that in society, we would teach these words in classes, like health classes at a young age, like starting in elementary school, for instance, um, someone got COVID that I know, and I was sitting on the phone trying to explain to their 11 year old child, what a, a, a warm compress is and how to make one. And, and they're like, I've never even done a dish before. How do you want me to, how do I get a towel wet in, in like literally just brought a soaking towel in instead of a warm compress. And I was like, no, like this, this should, this should be taught before, like once they are able to do dishes, once they're able to use a washing machine and a dryer, these are things that, Hey, if this is how you do, this is how you put a bandaid on. This is how you make a warm compress. This is how this is where we keep the medical supplies in our house because if the person can't talk and they need help and you're trying to explain it to a child, you're not going to be able to, normally you would think, oh, it'd be easy for them to go and, and get a warm rag and heat it up and heat up the water. But if the child doesn't know how or any concept of it, it's you might as well be teaching a newborn. That's so true. And I mean, there's so many topics that we always say schools could do better at teaching or better preparing. I think definitely the transition with college to the real world, there's a lot that they should be teaching us, but <laughs> we have to take all these classes that I like, there's so many classes that I'm like, okay, when, when am I going to use this? I rather learn this stuff that I'm actually going to deal with on a life skills. Like, yeah, but yes. definitely the health classes, because <laughs> you never know like even those kids, they could see their parents going through something. And if they had a little bit of information, they could kind of treat before paramedics start coming or things like that. So no, I totally agree with that part. I don't even remember anything I learned in health class. <laughs> like, right. I, I didn't learn anything like that. I, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I learned that, you know, how babies are made. Yeah, um, the, I remember the, that class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then even that, I don't know if that was right. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I, um, oh goodness, I, I legit didn't learn until I was in a position where it's like fight or flight. You have to learn this or you're just going to suffer. We could have prevented a lot of suffering for a lot of people had we just had some classes on it. And and it isn't taught in school right now. So it is going to be up to the parents or the aunts and uncles. I can't have children. So aunts and uncles to, um, to teach their nieces and nephews how to do these things. And hey, it'd be really cool if you knew this skill. This is how you put an ace bandage on. This is, yep. you know, where we keep our medical supplies in case mommy's bleeding or that type of thing. Um, this is how you call 911. This is the types of things you need to say when you call 911. Remember to take a deep breath and stay calm. You know, all of these types of things that we just don't know until you're in that situation and and have to know. And being type one diabetic means that you had that since childhood or birth, yep. right? So, you know, you probably, because you had that all your life, I didn't really get sick till I was 26 with endometriosis and 29 with RSD, but I got to live a whole healthy life <laughs> prior to that. 
So I didn't have to learn these skills. Whereas if you have something from a younger age, your family might put some more focus on those areas that, you know, testing your blood sugar and eating the right things. And I remember my dance teachers talking about posture, but I just thought they meant posture while you're dancing because that's, it's supposed to look better. I didn't realize that they meant posture was something that you need your whole life or by the time you're, you know, 60, you'll be facing the floor. It's, <laughs> it's things like that, that, that nobody taught us the why they just made off comments that, oh yeah, this seed got planted when I was a child, but how's my posture now? Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and, and how important that, that is in your, your whole health is like even drinking water back in those days, we do, I don't know how old you are, but we drank out of hoses at, <laughs> at track, at track. I remember they had these like metal, um, uh, v-shaped stands and they would run the track that they would run the water hose through it and they'd pump punch holes in the water hose and we would just walk up to it and just start drinking out of this little hole off of the water hose that you know the, i think people would probably have a heart attack if you told them to go drink out of the hose today oh yeah but back, back then it was like yeah just go drink it out of the hose everything will be fine so yeah <laughs> <laughs> Talk about being a TV personality. How did you get involved with that? And what has been the impact that it's had on you? Well, I learned a lot of things through being a television personality um, for reality, which reality is not real. That's the first thing I learned. There's a producer. So you tape each scene like six times, sometimes more, but around six times. And the first time they just say, be yourself, do what you want to do. And then they have this person, mine was a man, he was sitting in the corner with his notebook, like writing down stuff furiously. And then he would say, okay, try saying it this way. Okay, try saying it that way. And by the sixth take, you're saying something you totally didn't mean to say. Um, So I actually like live interviews best, (laughs) like podcasts and, and things where I can be myself. When it comes to television and share my story and my journey, because I think that's how we learn is sharing our personal, authentic stories and journeys. But I do like performing, obviously, as a cheerleader and dancer my whole life and singer and model and all that. So I like the TV stuff for um, fun and something that gets me away from thinking about my health all the time. But then I also have done things that were health related on television. And that's mostly what I do with some fun thrown in, uh, which um, I did a show on TLC called Extreme Time Cheaters and on the weather channel called Brainstormers. And um, and I also have done uh, the newlywed game with my husband. And, um, and, I, and then I got to do stuff like the talk um, and um, Dr. Drew's Life Changers and uh, whole, like over a thousand different appearances. So, <laughs> uh, so I've, I've done a lot and I like doing both reality and real, but um, I like to mix it up and not keep doing the same thing over and over. I think a lot of that used to be, actually, I did a, uh, I think a paper on is reality TV real? And oh, yeah. you're finding out things about these shows that you watch and you're like, oh, oh. Yeah, it changes I'm your like, mind completely <laughs> on how you're watching it now. It and does. My mom and I will be watching a show that after I find out about it, and we're like, okay, 
you know what probably happened and now it's how this is happening and you know yeah. that they stopped taping for a little bit and then oh nope we gotta run the tapes again but it's yeah. just it's interesting that I guess people would go through that if they didn't have a reason why they wanted to do it and it's well, I, like- I do it because I want to share my health story and journey yeah and I feel like even even something like um, I did a show called uh, My Next Move, and it was it was about moving and the challenges that we faced in moving into a new place and what what we went through. And we taped seven years of story in about a day and a half with costume changes and makeup and hair and everything. Like we we did a fake flood because we didn't have pictures from the actual flood that we had, so we made a fake flood. And you would think that this is a huge flood, and it was really a, a puddle in our backyard. Uh, so so yeah but my purpose is to share the real that happens so there's a seed of truth in every story but then they have a writer that writes it into something that's interesting to watch yes like like uh, yeah because you wanted to tell people about your story but you also knew going into it that you got have to make it entertaining because I think some people just oh, I just want to become famous and stuff. And no. then they realize what they have to, to get, go through. For don't that. expect to get famous. Um, you do get paid. So that's a bonus. Uh, and, um, and you know, do it for fun. Don't do it to become famous because it's, it's not some, it doesn't make you famous. And the more outrageous you are, doesn't, it, that just doesn't, um, equate like this the past season there was a lot of people like oh you're just on the show the bachelor for the wrong reasons or bachelor in paradise for the wrong reasons and i'm like well yeah because they're trying to gain followers and you'll gain the followers just by being on you'll get some but a lot of them will unfollow you when they realize that the persona doesn't match what your life is yep i'm when i'm on the show i'm talking about my health and i do this because I have this health challenge. And so my message is still coming across. I'm still planting seeds in the hopes that people will find me at, they'll look me up. Who's this Barbie? Or if I do it with my husband, we're Ken and Barbie. Who's Ken and Barbie? And then they'll come and and find my social media. And then I can keep them by showing them about chronic pain and the challenges of, of daily living and ways to get through it and how to ha- navigate the health system. And so I have something to bring them back to and, and move forward with them. But a lot of times celeb or reality stars will do it just to gain followers and then lose followers because they really didn't have that hook or anything that they were, that it can't, being famous can't be your only purpose for doing it. It has, to, there has to be a reason behind what it is and the best reality stars are ones who have had a challenge or a struggle of any type that can articulate it talk about it and share it so um so oftentimes that's what the reality producers are looking for and how they found me um now they just find me through social media and um and I talk and share my my actual story and what I go through on social media and that will attract the producers to say, Hey, we're doing a segment on X, Y, Z. Can you come in and talk about it? Or can we do an interview with you and and have, or send a camera crew to your house or follow you to a doctor appointment or whatever it is. So, 
um, I try to stay in my wheelhouse of health related topics when it comes to reality. This is random, but did you marry your husband because his name was Ken? Harshly, yeah. There we go. (laughs) I heard that and I'm like, there's no way. Like, that's too perfect. And and my name isn't Barbara or Barb or any other form. It's actually Barbie with a Y. And my sister's Marby, so we're Marby and Barbie. And and, um, my parents, I guess, had a plan. Uh, but when Ken, when I met Ken, he, we were, um, uh, near a new place. I had just moved in. I wasn't able to drive. I needed help with doctor appointments. And he's like, hi, I'm Ken. And I was like, I, I think I said, hi, I'm Barbie. And he was like, well, I'm Ken. And I was like, what? Like singing I, the aqua song. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I was like, well, I need help. What do you do? And he's like, oh, I work from home. And, and, and was telling me about his business. And I was like, well, could I pay you to drive me to, to physical therapy and doctor appointments? I have at that time, I didn't know I had a rare disease, but I had just had a shoulder surgery. And he was like, sure. And then on the drives, we started talking and getting to know each other. And then he asked me on a date and I was like, well, do I have to pay you if we're dating? <laughs> <laughs> um, but we kind of fell in love through that process and discovered that I had a rare disease and we had already fallen in love when we realized that this was the rest of my life. And it could get a lot worse and, or better. And it depends on the journey that we take, how this is going to turn out. And uh, he said, look, I, I was like, look, I'm nothing compared to what I was. And he was like, I've waited my, he, you know, was in his thirties and he's like, I've waited all this time to get married. I'm not going to say, oh, you have everything I've ever looked for in a woman, except for you have some health challenges. He's like, how shallow would that be? He's like, I'm not going to throw out somebody that checks every box that I've had all my life for who my wife was going to be, except for health, which wasn't even something I was thinking about. So, you know, it, it, I really got a gym. And I think it was God's way of saying, talk about the Ken and Barbie. It was God's way of saying, here is a sign. Cause I was like, I'm never getting married again. I don't, like, I, I'm not going through that ever again. It's, it's horrible. And God was like, no, I'm literally going to give you kin so that you know this is part of the plan. And I'm so glad that kin's in my life. And God brought me a really, really awesome man. Going through these TV shows and all the stuff that you're going through, was that something that you wanted to share in and in why you wrote your book? Or was there a different purpose and a different message that you wanted to share with the audience? Well, I've actually done nine books. So uh, yeah, so you're probably referring to my favorite, which is From Wheels to Heels. And that book is um, my favorite. It goes through my journey, but it also gives the readers actual life takeaways that they can implement in their life or use to spark an idea that would be fitting for their life if it's different than what I've done. And, um, And so I did the book and I did share a little bit about finding Ken in the book. But um, I did that, I did that book for sharing my health journey and showing other people that there's a good reason for help for hope, because there is help. And but I've also done like a children's book because with my four older nephews, um, I don't really have a very close relationship with them because I couldn't set the expectation or talk to them or teach them what I was going through. And with my younger four, uh, three nephews and a niece we made a specific conscious effort 
to say, this is how you interact with Aunt Barbie so that it could be positive for all of us. And I have a very close relationship with those four. So it, so that was intentional for that. I did one with my husband called Real Love and Good Sex for Chronic Pain Patients and Their Partners. That was for me and my husband. <laughs> and we had, we had done an episode on um, the doctor's television show about how to keep a marriage strong when one, uh, one partner has a chronic disease or illness. And so that's what sparked it. And um, because when we filmed that episode, they aired like a minute of the episode, but we taped for like 18 minutes and we had actually gone to LA to film a different segment. And when we got there, they said, oh, we changed the segment in like three minutes to prepare. Here's the topic. And then they just turned on the cameras and let us talk. (laughs) And we actually had a lot to say, surprisingly. Um, Also, when we would go to medical conferences, one of the biggest questions that we got from medical providers was, how do you keep your relationship strong when Barbie's in this much pain and you have this this, uh, hardship going on? How do you keep your marriage and your relationship working? So it was a common question we got from medical providers that they wanted the answers so they could share with their patients. And then when we did the doctors, it was like, wait a second, we actually know something about this. And, and, and so we were just sharing our real life experience to help other people through similar challenges because it's not talked about much. So, um, and then I've done one, my father's passed away, but we did one um, called the wisdom of Ingle, which is five generations of life lessons. And that's about inspiration and motivation and, and how to get over the challenges that you might face in your life based on true stories that happened with our family. And we were working on our second one. Um, all I ask is you try your best and then he passed away. So I haven't completed that one yet, but it is um, going to come out one day in honor of my dad in memory of my dad, but um, we didn't finish it together. So it, it's been kind of hard because he was the cornerstone of our family. So it's been hard to like finish doing it without him, but I will do, I will finish it and get it published. Um, just haven't got to that point yet mentally for myself. <laughs> Is there a project that you haven't done yet that you're thinking, I hope I eventually get to do it one day? (laughs) Um, It kind of goes into the next question. What do you hope for the future for you? I I have a bucket list. And I, so when I do have a a project or idea, I tend to try to accomplish it. Um, And so I've had to like redo my bucket list so many times because I have boundaries in my life physically and emotionally um, with the loss of my dad, but um, physically because of the chronic illnesses that I live with. And, um, and so I, I make a bucket list to say, these are the things I want to do. And I keep accomplishing the things on my bucket list. So then I'm like, Oh, I got to add new things. So I have to like create new ideas for my bucket list and, and keep, um, reviving, not reviving, but updating my bucket list as I, as I accomplish, um, the things that I want to accomplish. Cause again, growing up, I have a learning disability. I never thought I'd graduate high school. I actually had my elementary school principal tell me, don't think about college, just get through high school. Cause you probably won't. Um, he thought I was going to be a dropout cause I had a severe learning disability and I actually graduated college in four years. So he was wrong. Um, <laughs> so, um, but 
I have boundaries in my life and I keep having to test my boundaries. So what I accomplish in the future is going to be great. I just don't necessarily know what it's going to be because every about every six months to a year, I test my boundaries a little bit more to see what I could do. For instance, this past year, um, I, I work with International Pain Foundation and uh, one of our award winners a couple of years ago said, hey, I've been doing all these 5K runs for other charities and I want to do something for this charity. And I was like, ah, but so many people live with chronic pain that we work with. Like, how are they going to do it? And then that her idea like sparked a whole project called I Give a Care and people can run, walk, roll. You, I, I did the, I did it on a um, exercise bike. I did a 5k on an extra sit down exercise bike. So I didn't have to worry about falling over or hurting myself but I was able to, to build up, prepare, knowing the date of the event and, and, do, and do it and participate. So I found another way to participate in a 5K that isn't the normal 5K competition. Um, but then it sparked other ideas. Like people start saying, well, can I dance? Can I rollerblade? Can I swim? You know, golf? Like there were so many other ideas. So we just, I give a care. Um, it's a 5K, but you do it in your own way. I like that. It kind of, it, it doesn't exclude anyone. It includes everyone and even whatever activity they're doing, they feel that they're a part of something much bigger. And bigger. They, it's about being a part of the, the family and doing all the yes. uh, activities. I, I, I love that. I love the concept and the mission of that, that 5k, 5k. And yeah, it's just absolutely. amazing what you guys so, are doing. Thank you, Megan Roach for that idea. <laughs> and then helping us grow it into um, we've had four of four of those events now, and people just love it. And like you said, it's so inclusive. We have people from different countries participate. Um, with the pandemic, the lockdown, everybody had to find a new way to do things. And it was like, okay, there's boundaries on top of boundaries. How do we make this work for more people? And and we found a way to do that. So so excited to to be a part of that. So even right here behind me, here's my ribbon. And then I got um, extra awards for participating in the other events. So that's awesome. And then, yeah. And then this one was a uh, 5k um, that was set up. Paula Abdul has the same condition that I have. And, um, and Megan, who came up with this idea for us, she um, uh, is the president of the family, which is Paula Abdul's fan club. So it's called family. And um and so she created another, like a, a jump off event for uh, Paula's birthday to help uh, raise funds and awareness in Paula's name and honor. So, um, yeah, so I got to participate in multiple events now and racked up those awards. <laughs> have you had any c- interaction with Paula? I have. Um, Paula is a friend of mine and um, we connected at a public event, but I wrote a private letter and, and um, was able to give it to her. And it did take me, a, again, one of those things on my bucket list. Um, it took me a couple of years to get past security and all of the handlers and everybody. But um, finally, I was able to meet her, talk to her about cheerleading and dance and that connection publicly, but handed her a bag, which still like when you see the X Factor um, uh, premiere pictures, her assistant's right behind her carrying a bag that says, you, uh, it says, you just totally rock. And I, in that bag, I gave her a copy of, of some of my books and I gave her a handwritten letter 
which is really difficult for me to do. Um, handwriting, so my hand is, is weak. And um, I gave her a letterman, a pin off my letterman's jacket um, to represent the year that she had her first number one, which was the, uh, the award that I got for that year for cheerleading. And um, this wrote a beautiful letter and pinned it closed with my, with my pin and gave it to her. And then she contacted me after that. And um, she's done stuff with our charity and uh, she has stuff for a lot of charities now. But at that time, she had come out in 2005 and said that she had this condition and people tried to say she was a drunk and, and had all these problems and things. And in actuality, she was facing some of the same life challenges that I was, but she was on a spotlight, not knowing how to describe it to the public. And after she met me, she did her first public interview uh, from 2005 to 2012. She hadn't talked about it because of the backlash that she got for coming out and saying that she had this condition. And she, I said, look, we got your back and whatever you do that, to help us raise awareness, we support you hundred percent. And um, she felt more comfortable talking about it. So um, she's an amazing woman and, um, and a friend. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge. Never give up and never give in. (laughs) If you even have the smallest bit of hope to fulfill your dream, that's enough. That spark of hope is enough to carry you through and it will go, it will fill and it will dim as you're going through your project. But as long as you keep the the spark alive, that hope will get you through to accomplish whatever you need as long as you don't give up. Well, Barbie, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future has for you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that I got to share with you and your audience today. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.